I thought this morning, very quickly, just for 30 seconds, we would take a little quiz. If you remember back last year when we were going through the book of Ecclesiastes, every time we started looking at that book, every time we saw it on a Sunday morning, we would answer that question to ourselves, wisdom is correctly applied biblical knowledge. Oh, I'd say everybody got that. That's fantastic. Well, through the book of John, we also have been saying something very similar. That sort of is the theme idea of what we see in the book of John. And today we have some fill-in-the-blanks. And we're going to have to fill, fill in the blank together. Now, I've given you a couple of the first words. Jesus is the... Now we have to figure out what the main word is in that particular sentence. Can we do it all together? Jesus is the overcoming oh oh my goodness i've been saying it for a year and i just messed it up <laughs> jesus is the messiah the overcoming god king so my mess up actually gave you the second word that we were looking for uh, in the entirety of the book of john we see the focus not on the disciples but we see the focus on jesus himself the whole story is about how he came to be as human, as well as his entire ministry that he did with his disciples and with the nation of Israel, culminating in the very last week of his life, which we are looking at in the book of, uh, in the chapter 14 in particular. We're going to be looking at verse 8 all the way through verse 14. In this particular section, we've had a little bit more interaction and dialogue with some of the disciples. We saw in chapter 13 that Jesus predicted that he was going to be betrayed, and it was Judas who was the one who was going to betray him. And in the end of that particular section in chapter 13, Peter has a question. And his question was, Lord, I want to go where you're going. And Jesus says, you can't. Yes, I can. And Jesus says, you're going to end up denying me. So you don't know what you're talking about here. And Last week, we saw a second question that a disciple posed, and that was Thomas. And Thomas asked the question, uh, we don't know where you're going, how can we know the way? And Jesus answers that question by saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You can't come to the Father but through me. It's an exclusive process and path, believing in Christ, and then you have salvation. And today we start with Philip, who's already asked a couple questions already in the book of John, but he is utterly confused. And so Philip has a request. And his request is this. It's found in verse 8 and Jesus' answer in verse 9. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Now, not knowing anything else what follows, but that basic question, Jesus, show us the Father, how do you think Jesus is going to respond to that? What do you think his off-the-cuff response is going to be to Philip and to us who want to know, who's God? Can you show us God? That's what Philip is asking. Show us God. Show us this one who has this mighty plan, who has sent you, who has prophesied about you, who has led Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who has led the Israelites out of Egypt. Who is this God? Show him to me. Because the last time someone asked, show me yourself to God, it was Moses on Mount Sinai. And Moses said, hey, let me see you face to face. And God says, you can't see me face to face or you won't be able to live. 
My glory, my perfection, my holiness, my perfectness is so grand and great, you will not be able to exist if I show you face to face. So I will put you in the cleft of a rock. I will hide you myself and protect you myself, and I will let you see my backside, my back. And when God did that, Moses came down from the Mount Sinai. And how did Israel respond to that? They were terrified. They saw Moses because of God's glory and his perfection actually physically was radiant in Moses. And he was shining like a light. Not someone who got sunburned, but just brilliantly lit up. And people were afraid and said, cover your face, we cannot handle seeing the reflection of God's glory, even his backside in you, Moses. And now Philip says, show us the Father. Show us God. And Jesus is going to respond to that with absolute precision and a little bit amazement at Philip's misunderstanding and lack of understanding. Because Jesus says to him in verse 9, have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? He starts out by saying, you know me. How long have we been together? Probably about three years. Every single day for three years. It wasn't he showed up Monday through Friday and then was gone for the weekends and he just spent his 40 hours with Jesus and that was it. He was with Jesus one-on-one -on -one in that group of disciples for three full years. You get to know somebody when you're with them for three years, morning, noon, and night, evening, eating your meals together, sleeping together, uh, doing ministry together, walking together, endless miles of walking. Here is Jesus' discussion. And Jesus looks to Philip and says, you still don't get it. You do not understand this fundamental principle. Whoever has seen me sees the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Jesus' answer directly to Philip, when Philip says, I want to see God, show us the Father, show us who this, this one behind this entire Messiahship is. Show me the one who is this person who is directing things, managing things, who created all things, who's called you to be the Messiah, whose son you say you are. Show us God. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now we know that Jesus is not talking physically because God does not have a body. Jesus took on human flesh when he became born of Mary. And so he took on human flesh, but the Father never had human flesh. He's all spirit. So he has no body like we do. He does not have hands or ears or eyes. Now in Scripture we have lots of um, help as far as relating to God because it'll tell us in the Old Testament, hey, God sees this, God moves this, God's hand is protecting you. So we have these little words and phrases which is called, this is way more than you want to know, it's anthropomorphic language, which means it's human language and human characteristics assigned to God. And that's a way for God to express to us um, how we can relate to him a little bit better. But Jesus is not talking physically. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, if you know me, if you, if you listen to me and you follow me and you see my steps, 
you will see a perfect reflection of the Father. See, Jesus does God's will perfectly every day. Every day he does his will, and every day he perfectly reflects what the Father wants Jesus to do. So when you see Jesus, you see the Father's will being on display perfectly. He never misrepresents God. He never falls short in representing God. He perfectly represents God in his words, in his actions, in his thoughts, in the way he loves his disciples, in the way he teaches, and in the way he rebukes the religious leaders of the day. He perfectly reflects the Father because everything the Son does is according to the Father's will. So when you see the Son, you see a perfect reflection of the Father. And Philip, and I would say probably all the disciples, but by now they're realizing I probably shouldn't always be asking questions of Jesus because it never goes well. And Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus, it doesn't say he scratched his head, but I'm sure he kind of leaned back and was like, you got to be kidding me. If anyone reflects the Father perfectly, it's Jesus. Reflects him perfectly because he does the Father's will perfectly. Jesus continues in verse 10. Verse 10 and 11. He says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? It's another way of saying, when you've seen the Father, you've seen me. That we are coexisting. Everything the Father wants, I perform. And everything that I want, the Father loves. Because everything that Jesus does is according to the Father's will. So if you see Jesus, you see a perfect representation of the Father. And here's what's going to blow your mind. You are also called to be a perfect reflection of the Father through the Son. That is why you are called Christian. You are the followers of Christ, which means if someone sees you, they should see the Son, and they should see the Father. And immediately, that should humble us greatly. Because we do not perfectly reflect the Son we do not perfectly reflect the Father in all we say, think, and do, and how we behave around others. But Jesus did. Jesus did it perfectly. Every single moment of his existence, and of course, every single moment that Philip had any interaction with Jesus, when Jesus acted, it was as if the Father was acting. A perfect reflection of the Father. Oh, Many, many years ago, uh, I was in a restaurant in Chicago, and uh, I, I was probably maybe 14, 15 years old. We went to this spaghetti restaurant called Cipriani's, which is a, a I don't even know if it's even around anymore, an Italian restaurant in Chicago, a small little uh, restaurant in the middle of a big city. So I'm sitting there eating, and this lady from another table, older lady from another table, came over and said, um, I think I know you. And I'm sitting there with my mom, my sister, my grandma, maybe some, some, some other friends, and I'm like, I, Mom, I don't know who she is. <laughs> and uh, the lady goes, no, 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 I know you. And I'm thinking, what did I do? 
And I mean, obviously, I mean, we're probably 50 years apart, so I know there was no school, no work involved. I, you know, and she's going, I'm trying to figure out who you are because you look so familiar to me. And then she said, I got it. Is your father Herbert Meisler? And I said, yeah. I taught him in first or second grade, and you looked exactly like him. I know you had to be related to him. I said, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. That is an example of how people should react. When they see you, they should go, I know who you represent. I know who you look like. I know who you act like. I know how you think. You think just like Jesus. You look just like Jesus. You look just like God the Father. You act like him. You talk like him. You reason like him. You love like him. And so Jesus tells Philip, it's a no-brainer. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father because we're related. We're father and son. And not only father and son, we are God. And that reflection is perfect. Just like you probably reflect a lot looking like your parents. Because you are from your parents. You should look like your father, your father from heaven, and your son, the son of God. And so Jesus continues, says, do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Whose authority does I speak on? But the father who dwells in me does his works. So Jesus says, it's very clear. I'm not presenting myself. I am presenting the Father. Just like we don't present ourselves to the world, we present Christ to the world. We present his love, his understanding, his word, his truth, his way. We don't present our own way, our own selfishness. We present God's, or at least that is what we should be doing. But the Son says, hey, even my words that I'm speaking are not of my own effort or my own thinking or my own discovery. I am presenting to you exactly the words of my Father. I am doing exactly what he wants me to do. Then he tells Philip in verse 11 and tells us as well, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. So Jesus says, the easy thing to believe in is I'm saying and doing exactly what the Father says and does. If you want to see a perfect reflection of the Father, I'm him. I am doing his will perfectly. And if you don't believe that, believe all the works that I've done. And what are the works that Jesus is talking about? Well, first and foremost, turning water into wine. A miracle. Healing the lame who couldn't walk, the cripples who couldn't walk. Healing the people who are blind that couldn't see and now they could see. Healing the deaf who could not hear and now they hear. Healing those who were possessed by demons to such a point that it terrorized their soul and terrorized towns. Casting them out and having power and authority over the demonic world. 
some of his works. Just a few chapters before. Walking up to the tomb of a friend who was dead and saying, Lazarus, come forth. And a dead man rose from the grave and walked out of the tomb and was celebrated by the city for a miracle. All of those are wondrous. His control over nature, telling the storm to be quiet, and it was, walking on water, a miracle. But it all pales in comparison to a real miracle. When he forgives people of their sins and makes them right with the Father. As he taught Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. And it's not by your will. It's not by your effort. It's not by your obedience. But it's by the grace of the Father. Bringing new life. Salvation. Transferring you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his glory. Those are the works of Christ. He says, if you don't believe my words, look at the evidence around you. Then Jesus continues in verse 12. It says, truly, truly, that moment where we wake up and we pay attention it is amen, amen. Sure as the truth is being spoken, here is a moment of rock-solid truth. Pay attention, truly, truly. I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. He's told them many times that he's going to be leaving them, that where he goes they can't follow, that he's going back to the Father, that he's going to prepare a place for them at the beginning of John chapter 14. And here he combines the fact that he's leaving, but he's leaving and the disciples are going to be empowered because he leaves. And we're going to see later on in the book of John, and we certainly see in the book of Acts, that when Christ left, he sent his spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to indwell and inhabit us in such a way to bring conviction, strength, and encouragement to follow the Father's will at every step. He does not leave us alone. He leaves us with another, what Jesus calls, comforter. Someone that walks beside us and is with us and is a down payment for the promise of the inheritance that is yet to come. But let's look at this just a little bit. Whoever believes in me. This is that point in which you trust in Jesus fully, that you may not understand everything. Jesus, you know, God never tells us that we have to understand everything. He tells us simply we need to believe that God understands everything, that God knows everything, that God knows all the details, 
He calls us to follow him and believe, God, you are the one who holds the details. You are the one that holds the plan. You are the one that holds the truth. I'm just acknowledging that you are indeed true. And when, when Jesus says you believe in me, what you're doing is you are believing the whole kit and caboodle of who Jesus is. You're believing everything about his nature, that he is fully God and fully man. You're believing everything that he's performed is miraculous, not a sleight of hand, not magic, not manipulating the unknown world to his advantage. No, it is purely he has command over the world and nature. And it is believing what he says is true, that he has come to be the Messiah, to be the overcoming God King, to give his life a ransom for ours. He says, you believe that. And in doing so, there's a promise. You will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Let's be careful here, because we have some examples in the book of Acts where people were trying to get on the bandwagon of being a Christian because there was power associated with it. There were miracles that were taking place, and they wanted to be part of that miraculous. They wanted to be the ones that were raising the dead and walking on water and healing people. And some of the apostles did just that. Not the walking on water, but the other things. They did physical miracles, but I think Jesus already gives us a hint on what some of those works are that we're going to be performing that we should be doing, that need to be part of our life. And he tells us very quickly, already in the book of John, in the fifth chapter. Now, I know it's been a while since we were in John chapter 5, but John chapter 5 automatically tells us a few of the things, the greater things, the good things that we will be performing, that we should be performing, that should be part of our lives. He tells us in verse 20, and let me just start in verse 19 of John chapter 5. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Again, he does the Father's will. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Jesus does the Father's will. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing himself, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. That you may marvel. And verse 21, as to that, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to those whom he will. And in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in them, he who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus, in that one little simple section in John chapter 5, is telling us part of the works that we're going to be performing that we can do today, that we should be doing today, and that is proclaiming the words of life. And when we proclaim the gospel and people are saved, that is a mighty work. Is it not? There is a mighty work when you share God's truth, when you share what is right and wrong, when you share what is yes and true, when you share about the character and nature of Christ, when you share to people what Christ has done and how Christ can be part of your life, that is a mighty work. That doesn't come naturally to us. That is the work and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And when they come to repentance and their sins are forgiven, we have participated in proclaiming the goodness of God and salvation to all mankind. And is there not a greater good that you can do than to be part of that process of having an individual 
go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That is a far greater miraculous work than healing the lame, the blind, the deaf, or even bringing someone back from the dead. Now those are all visual, yes, but proclaiming the words of eternal life and having response is amazing. And it wasn't but a short time after this event took place in John chapter 14 that the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 would take place. And Peter and the other disciples would be emboldened by the power of the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel, and thousands of people were saved that day. Greater works than what Jesus did. How many people were saved under Jesus' ministry? We don't know the number. But out of the 12 that he had closest to him, only 11 made it through. Judas, the deceiver, betrayer. Peter, on that single day, had a greater response to the gospel than Jesus did his entire ministry. Many people in history have had that happen as well. And remember, Jesus has this entire time pointed out clearly that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He does the Father's will. So everything he does reflects the Father perfectly. And Jesus ends in what you might think in verse 13 and 14 is completely disconnected from what he's been saying before. But if you remember, the topic and subject that Jesus has been talking about to Philip is, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, which means I perfectly do what the Father wants. I fulfill the Father's will perfectly. And that leads Jesus to an incredible point of application for Philip, but for us as well. He says in verse 13 and 14 of John 14, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. There may not be a more abused and misunderstood verse than these verses. I have heard too many times to even count this scenario. I prayed to God that this would happen. And I prayed in Jesus' name. And it didn't happen. Either there is something wrong with me, and I don't have enough faith. Maybe I'm not even saved because it didn't happen. Or maybe there is no God. And this is all made up. Because I prayed in Jesus' name that this would happen, but it didn't. So-and-so did not get better. They got sicker and they died. 
I didn't get the job. I didn't have a good relationship. What's wrong with me that it didn't happen? I followed the formula. I prayed in Jesus' name and it didn't happen. As if tacking on at the, na- at the end of a prayer, in Jesus' name, amen, made it somehow spiritual. And so I want to, I want you to rightly understand what Jesus is communicating. Because he's already set the stage. You want to know what God's will is? You want to know the Father? Follow me. I fulfill it perfectly. But it's very hard sometimes for us to evaluate God's truth not based on your experience. Because I'm sure you've had prayers like I have that have gone unanswered as of this day. Or the answer was exactly the opposite of what I wanted. So is there something wrong with us or is there something wrong with God that it didn't happen that way? I'll put your mind at ease. There is nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with God. There is nothing wrong with his answering prayers. There is nothing wrong on his side of this equation. It is something wrong with us. Let me explain that. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, the Apostle John, who was here at this moment, gives us some clarity on what Jesus is talking about. He says, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that is confidence towards Jesus, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So if it is according to his will, all of a sudden, all of this comes into play. If we are reflecting the Father's desires, if we are reflecting the Father's truth, if we are in his will, both living it and breathing it, then John clarifies and adds more information to Jesus' statement that needs to be according to his will. But then you have the the question, what is God's will? How do we figure out God's will? If if I pray according to God's will, then it comes to pass. Because it's God's will, it definitely is going to come to pass. But how do I know I'm praying according to God's will? How do I know what God's will is? And I'm going to give us some very simple measures of that. But first and foremost, we have to understand with clarity what Deuteronomy 29, 29 says. And I know that's a verse I bring up a lot because it's a verse that may be one of the most applicable verses in the book of Deuteronomy to us outside of the Ten Commandments that are there in Deuteronomy. Because in Deuteronomy, Moses writes, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. That's Moses' way of saying that we would do God's will. That if we follow God's word, we are following his will. And there are things that happen in our lives that Moses says, God doesn't reveal to us. And so what should we do with those things that God doesn't reveal to us? Not worry about them. Not worry about them. Not spend any mental energy or spiritual effort on things that God has said, this is secret. Because I guarantee you, it will drive you crazy trying to find out secret things from God. Because you know what it's like to have a secret 
and someone wants to find out, and you go, oh, no, no, I can't tell you. I can't, oh, come on, tell me, tell me. No, I can't tell you. Come on, tell me. No, I can't tell you. Well, if you love me, you tell me. Oh. And you get in this conundrum about keeping secrets and telling secrets. There is no way you can manipulate God into telling, and for him to tell you secret things that he says belongs to me. There are certain things that you are going to experience in life, certain situations you are going to face, certain dilemmas you have to choose yes or no to, and God is not going to reveal to you anything about it because it may be secret. But what he has revealed to us is his word. And if we pray according to his word, we have confidence that he will hear us and it will be so. So you have to, first of all, as you're going into prayer, asking God, hey, I need you to do this for me, or I want this to happen for me, you have to wrestle with the idea. Is this one of those areas that God has kept secret to himself, or is this something that he's revealed to us? And there are three very quick, simple things to remind yourself of, of things that God has revealed to us. The first one is the great commandment, which is throughout the Old Testament and several times in the New Testament, but is summarized in Mark chapter 12, 29 through 31. This is when a Pharisee came to Jesus and said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, I'll tell you what the greatest commandment is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I guarantee if you ask God in prayer, God, help me love you more with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help me love my neighbor. They're so hard to love. They are so difficult to deal with. Help me love those people at school, at work. Help me love those relatives that are on the outcast who do nothing but attack me. Help me love them. I guarantee you, you pray a prayer like that and God will answer it. Because he's told us, revealed to us, we are to love. So if you're having problem loving, better ask God for help, because I know he's going to give you that help. Secondly, there's the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 19. Go into all the world and share these things about Christ. I pray, I know if you pray a prayer that says, Lord, I want to have opportunity to share your gospel. I want your word to be fruitful in someone's life. I want it to be productive in my life and someone else's life. I want people to turn to you and love you and be born again and move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. If you pray to that end, I know God will answer that prayer may not answer it according to your time or the way you think it will be answered, but pray for the effectiveness and the power of the gospel to go forth in this world, and it will. Not one single word of his returns void and unaccomplished of nothing. No single word of the gospel is wasted, even if the person's heart is hardened and hostile towards you. All it takes is a single word and the working of the Spirit in that person's life and their life can change. And you can be part of that. And then lastly, if those two things were not big enough, well, I'll give you, I'll give you a bonus one. Here's the bonus one, and then we'll get to the third one. The bonus one is if you ever wonder, how can I pray according to God's will and I know it will come to pass, read the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And pray to that end that you would be kept from idols. Pray to that end that he would be the only God. Pray to that end you would not take his name in vain. Pray to that end that you would honor him and worship. Pray to that end that you would honor authority that is over you and that you would be a blessing to those under your authority. 
pray that you would not steal, that you would not murder, that you would not commit adultery, that you would not lie, that you would not be envious of others. Pray to that end, and I know God will interact with that prayer and bring it to pass and give you strength and wisdom and encouragement and fellowship to fight those sins and to promote the goodness will of God in your life, that you would be identified as a believer through your actions. But lastly, and number four, and where I conclude, is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 through 18, and I'm going to close here, Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. These are all things that you can pray, and I know God will answer it. God will hear it. God will identify with that and say, yes, that reflects me. Honor those in authority over you. Live at peace with others. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idols. Pray that you're not lazy. Encourage the faint-hearted. Pray for those who are weak. Help the weak. Actually ask for opportunities to serve others. Be patient with them all. That is a prayer that we can pray. And I know it feels dangerous at the time. Lord, give me patience. But he tells you this is what we're supposed to be doing. Asking for patience and having opportunities to express that patience to others. See that no one repays evil for evil. Oh, how easy it is to get back at someone. But pray that you don't. Pray that you don't have that temptation and pray that you live at peace with them and not at war. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You never have to wonder, what is God's will for my life? If you ever wonder what is God's will for your life, you go back to Deuteronomy 29, 29, you go to back to Mark 12, you go back to Matthew chapter 28, you go to Levit uh, num uh, Exodus chapter 20, and you end up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I guarantee you, if you focus your energy on those four sets of passages, you will not have time to worry about anything else in life if you are focused upon those. Because I guarantee you, that is God's will for your life. To love, to spread his gospel, to pray in this way, and to hold yourself to the standards that he lays out in his word. That is more than enough to keep us focused and to reflect Christ to a fallen world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray as the band comes up. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunities to love and serve you. Father, there is so much more in our life that we put worth in. But Father, we know that if we live according to your word, we will be good. And we will be better than good. We will be reflecting Christ to the world around us. We will be that light set upon a hill. Help us, Father, not to hide that light. Help us, Father, to be bold, but present your truth in love. For we know that is your will for our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.